How's it going, guys? It is Wednesday, November 6th. This week on the podcast, Robert Miller joins me to discuss blockchain in healthcare, something that I haven't really talked about before, but it's very interesting and it's actually a really good episode. We talk a lot about ethics and blockchain in healthcare. We also go over federated learning and zero knowledge proofs and a number of other topics. So it's definitely an episode that has a lot of technical stuff. So definitely listen to it twice. And as always, make sure to subscribe if you have not already and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about blockchain and healthcare. Enjoy. This is the Blockhash Podcast. So how are you doing, Robert? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. So for the audience to kind of get an idea of who you are, if they're not already familiar with you, um, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, your past, how you kind of got from point A to point B into into crypto, into what you're doing now and like crypto health and whatnot. Hey, well, thanks for having me on the podcast and uh, thanks to all your listeners for tuning in. Um, my name is Robert Miller. I'm a senior consultant at Consensus Health. Uh, among other things within that scope and, and outside. Um, I found cryptocurrency on Reddit in about 2011. Um, I noticed that people were selling goods, whether that was like physical goods, shipping things to people or digital, um, like video game items to folks and their unit of account wasn't dollars. Um, it was Bitcoin and that kind of piqued my interest. Um, so that was my first exposure. I bought in 2011. Uh, the price went up like 25%. I was like, great. I made $35. I'm going to cash out. So I sold in 2011 to um, reflect on that a lot and the and regret that. Uh, and ever since then, crypto has just sort of been an interest of mine. Um, I followed the markets here or there and sort of the large scale developments um, for a few years, but I wasn't actively involved in it until maybe um, 2016. My interest started to peak up again when Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem started to gain some momentum um, when you were able to not just send payments, but really write robust um, programming on top of those payments, uh, smart contracts, right? And um, in particular, I thought that the DAO at the time was a fascinating experiment. Um, and so I started tinkering at nights uh, with Ethereum at the time. Um, I was working at a algorithmic trading fund too, doing um, foreign exchange uh, algorithmic trading where mm -hmm. I operationalized um, algorithms to find patterns within the foreign exchange market, right? And so started applying some of the things that I had learned within the scope of that job to crypto. Um, thought that this was something that was really important and that I wanted to be a part of it in a bigger way than just moving money from, you know, one asset to another uh, and applying really advanced maths to that. Right. And I, I grew up around healthcare. I, I had some background earlier, um, did, a string of internships, uh, one with the Mayo Clinic. My father's a radiation oncologist. My mother's a biologist. 
I've been in and around healthcare my whole life. I had that background um, from previous jobs and internships. And I found myself um, at a startup uh, called Medical Chain. I was employee number one. They did decentralized electronic health records. Um, I was the director of business development for them for about a year. Some interesting stuff in the U.S. Um, with the Mayo Clinic there that uh, uh, can't get into the details of too much yet, but hopefully in coming months would be able to. And I left Medical Chain to start my own company called Honeycomb Health, where we made uh, disease-specific personal health records for patients with rare diseases to help them manage their cures and share information with researchers to accelerate the um, accelerate the development of new cures and treatments. Uh, we use blockchain for access management. I exited that in January and joined Consensus Health as a senior consultant. So that's how I find myself here today. Very cool. What algo fund were you working with? Uh, Goodshaw Capital Management. It was a family office in London. What was that experience like? Like, was it just like you working on the numbers and everything the whole time, or were you like overseeing it? Um, a, l- a little bit of both, right? So it was my job to um, make our algorithms better and bring like novel ways of recognizing patterns within numbers and then to operationalize that as well. So not only do you need to have some edge within the maths, but you need to um, make a robust system for deploying that and managing your risk and, and tracking your performance. Um, and so my job was all of the above. You definitely mentioned that you, your family, yourself, you have quite a um, medical background. Were you at any point considering a career in medical school or as a, as a doctor or as a PhD? Um, I had horror stories told to me. <laughs> my father of the long, long hours, brutal hours that he had to do as, as a resident. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I, you know, believe it or not, neither of my parents, I think, ever encouraged me to be, become a doctor. And um, although I thought about it here or there, it, it was never really uh, my priority. Yeah, I, I was looking at that route for a while. But I mean, once you look into how long it takes to even get to the point that you're going to be a doctor, and then you look at the long hours, and then you look at the residencies, and then you look at what life would be like as a doctor, it's not very appealing. <laughs> So I can kind of understand. Yeah, I think that I'm uh, I'm the type of person that just likes to go and, and build things and do things. And I didn't want to uh, spend the years that I would have had to uh, in school to become a doctor. So I empathize with that as well. You said you want to build things. Like what what's kind of stuff are you working on or that you have worked on uh, recently that you've uh, put together? I'm doing um, a number of interesting things. Uh, a lot of what I spend... Um, my time thinking about are, are these new privacy preserving technologies like uh, secure multi-party computation, uh, federated learning, zero knowledge proofs, uh, and et cetera. There's a, there's a whole range of them. And even within those, you know, there, there are subcategories. And so within the scope of my job at Consensus and then just on my nights, weekends, and, and hackathons occasionally, uh, those are the, the things that I'm tinkering with. You know, one of the things that I'm um, really excited about, though, and, and maybe we could spend some time thinking and talking about, um, is this intersection of blockchains and federated learning. Um, 
So I'm not sure, would it be useful for me to go and do like a little bit of background about federated learning? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how uh, knowledgeable people are on what federated learning is, but yeah, we can, yeah, let's talk about its background first before we look at the uh, the crossroads. So traditionally, when you want to train an algorithm, you need to gather up a bunch of data from a number of different sources and bring it under one roof, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you have a couple different companies, they uh, all work in the same space, they have a similar problem, they have similar data sets, and they want to join forces to uh, train an algorithm in order to gain some insights um, on whatever their problem is. So all the companies get together, they send all their data to the, the one company that you know has the best data science team and the most um, expertise in that area. And then, great, you've got all the data in one place, you can deploy an algorithm on it and leverage those insights that come from the algorithm. Um, well, this, this has worked to some extent and it's created billions, maybe even trillions of dollars in our, our economy. Um, but critically, you need to share data under one central roof in order to train algorithms in in the normal way that we've done it to date. Um, And federated learning takes this model and it flips it on its head. Instead of taking a bunch of data from a number of different sources and sending it to one place to train an algorithm, it takes the algorithm and sends it to the data sources. And it's uh, completely flipped around. So instead of a a data source sending data to one central location, you will send only the algorithm to the data source. And the data source within its own on-premise, its own four walls, will train that algorithm using its local information and only forward on to the next participant in a network, only forward on the updated algorithm, you know, only Um, the model and what it's learned to the next person who will take that updated model and they'll train it on their local data as well. You know, and it'll get a little bit smarter just like any algorithm does when you train it and they'll pass it on to the next participant who will train it a little bit more and pass it on to the next participant, you know, et cetera. Um, And it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. You, You can do a few more things to preserve privacy even further, but, you know, that's the basic idea that you're not sharing your data locally. Um, instead, you're only sharing updated um, algorithms or, or models. And so it, it's decoupling this need to share your data in order to collectively learn from it. And the, uh, you know, this, this is a really interesting capability that's being deployed already, primarily um, within enterprise settings, but there are some uh, use cases that would be familiar to everybody, I think. So actually, the the place where federated learning comes from um, is Google, who uses it to train the algorithms that autocorrect works off of. So you don't have to share all of your uh, information about what you're typing on your phone in order for autocorrect to get smarter. Um, It's actually only sharing the updated model that's trained on your phone while you're sleeping. Uh, with Google central servers and users are able to keep their privacy to a smaller extent. And, you know, that's also the reason why um, your phone's able to uh, give you autocorrect recommendations so quickly is because you have a machine learning model on your phone instead of in the cloud somewhere. 
Um, so there are some enterprise healthcare use cases too that we can get into if you'd like, but that's a brief introduction to federated learning. Yeah, definitely. So what's what's the benefit of federated learning um, in terms of healthcare? Or like, is it does it have to do with like privacy issues or like IP issues or like patient data? Like what's the real benefit? Yeah, I think that um, you, you've laid it out really well. I mean, healthcare data is sort of unique um, and we're uniquely positioned to leverage data for the purpose of creating value and improving our lives within the healthcare sector. But that's in tension with this set of ethical, legal, economic, um, and, and sometimes technical challenges related to data privacy and sharing information with others. Um, and so federated learning gives you this tool for groups of healthcare enterprises or individuals to come together to collectively train an algorithm without having to share their information. Um, so not only are you um, obviating the need to share potentially competitive information, but you are preserving the privacy of your patients as well, if, if we're talking about um, patient data here. Yeah, sure. Um, but with, with patient data, it's are patients being exploited with their data or, or is it just something that allows them the opportunity to actually claim their data that they didn't really have before? Well, I, I suppose it's it, it really is contextual and it depends. Um, so, you, you know, there's an argument that uh, you could make that patients are being exploited in, in the status quo really broadly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, the widespread sale of de-identified health records in the United States. Um, and I, I think that that's abusive. Federated learning, though, in and of itself, isn't necessarily exploitative um, as long as the participants in it uh, are participating or their data is being used consensually. Right. And you, you can make an argument that it actually represents an improvement over the status quo because you, you don't have to share um, your underlying data with third parties in order to gain the benefits of that data. It, it makes sense, too. I mean... Like I think about it all the time when I'm wearing like my Apple watch because it keeps close track of my heart rate, um, like every like five minutes or something like that. So it knows like my average heart rate it knows when it picks up, how high it goes, how low it goes, my resting heart rate. And it, that gets pushed to an app. And I mean, I don't know if Apple gets that information or if third party gets that information. And it's not really something that like I volunteer to share. It's not something like I can sell or monetize or choose to give out or access settings very easily to like restrict certain things. Um, and like I think about little things like that all the time um, within the tech industry, within the medical industry. So I can definitely see where there are a lot of ways that we can improve. But like if you're a patient, what could you use that data for? Could you? Is it just for selling it? Or for like privacy reasons, or like what, what's the main driver? Well, uh, on on the note of your Apple Watch, I mean, how about Google buying Fitbit? How many people do you think consented to their data being collected by Fitbit, and uh, were actively thinking about the idea that um, Fitbit was going to be purchased by Google down the road, and that that affected their calculus? Well, they're no better. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> all right. And I, I think that that's a great demonstration of how our model of how we protect patients' privacy today is flawed. And it puts undue burdens on patients to manage these super complex trade-offs uh, that have to do with the collection and processing of your data that, that are just really difficult to conceptualize, right. right? I mean, I certainly don't think about, like, what if this company is acquired by big tech co every single time that I sign um, a user agreement somehow. So I, I think it, it's a good case of showing how um, the, the status quo is flawed in some way. Uh, but, you know, back to your, your actual question of what people will use their health information for, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I think that we're going towards a world, uh, you know, beyond just sharing your data for the purposes of getting up to date and accurate care, right? right? Um, bringing your health record from provider to provider. Um, outside of that context, um, it, it's hard to say. It seems to me that we're not going to be able to put this, like, sell your data genie back uh, in the bottle necessarily, or, um, you know, if, if consumers will have the right to sell their data more broadly, it, it seems difficult to be able to say that you wouldn't be able to sell you, your health information. So that'll be, you know, one particular use case, if you so wish, that it has a lot of um, nuances and, and might be problematic in some cases. Things like direct-to-consumer healthcare services and products uh, as, as the barriers to advanced analytics and AI are lowered. The combination of those two things, as well as easy access to your health information, will mean that um, people increasingly have the ability to become like scientists and researchers of their own, of making sense of their health information or maybe grouping together with others to make sense of their health information. And so I think like learning from your health information or, or research in some form of collective way is, is definitely a use case that I find interesting. Yeah, that definitely is an interesting use case. I, I think where when it comes to patient data, it it's kind of different because when it comes to health and if it came to a situation where your health was at risk, there are a lot of times where the patient can't necessarily make the best decision for themselves. And I, mm-hmm. I imagine that like if you had control over like um, all your data as a patient, whether it be your heart rate or in your vitals or past issues you've had or things that you might consider embarrassing that you don't want to share, um, it, it's like one thing for you to hold back to like a third party company that wants that information so they can sell you something versus like if you go to the hospital uh, and it's an emergency and you're like half unconscious and they can't get to that information without you consenting to it, but maybe you are incapable of that or you don't want to give that information out, but it's vital for a doctor to probably help you in some situation. Is that something that where there's like a caveat where if it was like an emergency situation and you as a patient were in control of your data, that there would be, I don't know the word, but like a backdoor or like an emergency protocol, like for like hospitals or certain situations. Cause I feel like once we start getting into that arena where people are trying to control their data and with the way that everything's going towards privacy, it's, it's great and everything and I'm all for it. But I mean, I feel like there's certain situations like maybe even in emergency situations where that could be an issue for 
um, like a doctor to get a hold of important information? Yeah, it's tough uh, and, and it's, it's nuanced, right? Uh, and these aren't easy um, questions and I don't know that anyone has a, a definite answer. Um, I think that what we'll probably see are it's some convergence on a standard of how health record apps uh, or ways to manage your health information more broadly deal with these things. Mm-hmm. I think Apple right now has a solution that does a, a pretty good job. You can set like emergency health information that um, can be accessed from outside of the lock screen, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if you have diabetes, you're taking this or that. Um, medication that folks should know about if you were unconscious. Um, you're allowed to display that information there. And that seems like a, a reasonable mid-ground to me where like you have physical access to someone's device. You're able to access some information that they have before uh, the event specified. Um, that, that's like some mid-ground, but you know, there are still a bunch of cases where um, like, for example, I don't have that information programmed on my iPhone um, right now. I'm thinking of it. And I'm sure that there are all sorts of cases where you'll need to know someone's full health history that um, won't be programmed in there. And it would be useful to access their health information. And I'm not really sure what the right answer is in that case. But I'm sure we'll get creative and figure something out. Sure, there's like no right or wrong answer to that today because it's so like, like on the edge, brand new, different areas in tech and whatnot. Now, I just think of it all the time. It's really interesting. So there's just so many weird nuances in the healthcare industry in general. But like with this, how how does blockchain like converge with this? Like how how can blockchain play more of a role in healthcare? Well, there are there are a bunch of different places where blockchain can play a role within healthcare. Um, you know, specifically within your health information, I think that blockchain can play a role as uh, kind of your your access management, right? Mm -hmm. Where you specify your permissions, this person should have access for this long for this purpose of this subset of my data, um, as well as using blockchain as a way to record how data has been used, when um, and what for what purposes. Um, and, you know, that way, recording that on this um, public, immutable, perhaps not public, sometimes public, immutable ledger that can't be um, changed would give people confidence that their information isn't being accessed in ways that, that they don't, uh, don't consent to. And then there are a whole slew of different use cases in, in other parts of healthcare, like clinical trials or, or supply chain as well, where I think um, blockchain's unique properties can be helpful too. We can get into that if you'd like. Yeah, we can definitely get into that. I know you've done like a lot of research on this stuff too, like on different health projects in the crypto and blockchain industry. Um, what what are some that you find uh, more interesting or more useful? Um, well, you know, I'm biased. I think that uh, the stuff that we're doing at Consensus Health is phenomenal. <laughs> and so you know, if you're interested in federated learning or what if I um, what I laid out earlier to you um, sounds interesting at all or uh, value-based care, then please feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can find me on Twitter or um, Google my name. I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, so I think that those are two amazing projects that I have my, my hands in uh, that I find exciting. 
I'm a big fan of the work of Hashed Health as well. I think John Bass um, is a very thoughtful and methodical leader who has been um, trying to find value for blockchain and healthcare for longer than anyone else. And he has a couple of exciting projects like Procredix, uh, SignalStream, Bramble. Um, and for those of you who don't know, um, Procredix is a solution for physician credentialing that allows uh, for different providers to share physician credentials between them um, to speed up the process of onboarding a, a new physician, um, reduces the time that it takes to verify and, and get a bunch of documents from disparate sources. And the blockchain is sort of a trust layer between them. Um, Bramble is like their marketplace for the selling of different uh, healthcare goods and services. Uh, using the Ethereum blockchain and um, non-fungible tokens to represent every single good or service as like a consumable digital good, mm -hmm. right? right? And uh, SignalStream is their, um, I think they call it a contracting platform for uh, the adjudication of um, contracts between different parties. So really complex agreements that, you know, have uh, a bunch of different rules and they're using a blockchain as a way to um, streamline those and execute them. So I, those are some projects that I find interesting. Yeah. What was the last one called again? SignalStream. SignalStream. That's interesting. So is, does it like allow you to like set up a contract between multiple parties or does it like just kind of facilitate it? You know, um, I think at the beginning, you are facilitating contracts, existing contracts between parties. Um, but I have to imagine that their strategy is to move upstream into enabling new types of contracts um, and, and letting people enter into contracts on their platform, too. And I should also say that um, beyond individual projects, I think that where a lot of the, the value um, of blockchain and healthcare comes from is consortias of um, companies within healthcare coming together to tackle some common problem. Um, so sometimes it's, it's not a startup, but it's like a bunch of insurance companies coming together or a bunch of pharmaceutical companies coming together and using a blockchain as shared infrastructure to tackle some problem that they all have, where you really are able to, to get some value out of um, blockchain that just isn't possible with one individual startup tackling a problem. Um, since blockchains are sort of inherently a team sport, right? You need multiple parties. Do any of those consortias exist today? Or is that just something like on the horizon that companies are looking forward to doing? There are a, a handful of them. And this year, um, I've been super excited to see more and more of them popping up. Um, so the most famous consortia today uh, is the Synaptic Health Alliance. It's this um, business network of providers and insurance companies that have come together to manage um, like provider demographics in a better way. Uh, and these are big, like marquee brands within healthcare. Um, so Aetna, Quest Diagnostics, United Healthcare, Optum, Humana, Cognizant, and Multiplan, I think. Yeah, the, that was seven. Um, and so each of those parties, by law, has to keep a record of um, provider demographics. So like, who, 
is this doctor practicing at this particular hospital? What kind of insurance do they take? Uh, information like that. But in, in doing that, um, insurance companies will repeat a lot of the same workflow. So Aetna and um, Humana may, may be making a phone call to the same person at the same front desk within the same day asking for the same information. And the Synaptic Health Alliance um, is a project that uses a, a blockchain as a, a common data set between all these parties of provider demographic data um, such that when Aetna makes that call to check uh, about the demographic information of, of a certain doctor, um, Humana doesn't have to repeat that workflow. And they've had uh, stellar results as well. I think that they, they've reduced costs by like something like 60% on um, a part of healthcare that unexpectedly takes billions of dollars to, to manage. So it, it's had really good results. Um, and they're moving on to their, their next use case in um, the coming year. And, you know, if you take anything uh, away from this podcast with me today, then I think that this is a, a good demonstration of how blockchain is already affecting healthcare. I mean, you get all of these companies that are normally competitors to come together, work together to change their workflows to accept information from another company and to do this all under a common governance model and technical infrastructure. I mean, it's not at all the way that healthcare normally works, a bunch of competitors collaborating together. And I think that that's unique and enabled um, particularly by a blockchain. So blockchain is already changing healthcare in some ways. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I can see that being used for all different types of industries too that are out there for lots of different companies. But it seems like it really helps streamline the process for what companies are doing, um, not only for themselves, but I mean, obviously for others too, so they don't have to repeat certain things and create more efficiency. It, it sounds like it's it's definitely an area where blockchain is going to have a profound effect for sure. Yeah, definitely. I know we we're talking about companies being happy and working together, <laughs> um, but okay. in terms of like, I, I know in the in email you mentioned uh, ethics and emerging technologies. Yeah. So I'm curious, like from your perspective, how you view that, like, do you see there being ethical issues with how blockchain could be used potentially by another company or another entity? Um, or what, what's kind of your take on ethics in blockchain or ethics and technology more generally? Uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there could certainly be uh, ethical problems from the implementation of, of blockchains. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes technologists, and I consider myself a technologist, think of technology as something that is neutral. And I think that that's ridiculous. You know, technology is, is not at all neutral. Technology oftentimes is, is inherently political and or in, in one way or another and will confer like a certain set of values depending on how you implement it and use it. Um, and that's particularly salient within cryptography and in the blockchain space. You know, we're writing rules for who can do what um, at what time. And, and that's like, inherently um, political. 
Uh, and and it, it carries with it a certain ethical weight depending on what you do with it. It doesn't mean to say like everything that you do, you need to check out with a bioethicist or, or an ethicist to just be mindful of, of what you're creating and the values that um, you are seeking to put out in, into the world. Um, but there certainly are problematic things that people can do with, with blockchains. And I think we don't spend enough time particularly within healthcare, asking ourselves um, hard questions uh, about things that we are building. Um, and people are, are racing to implement some things that I think we haven't really f fully figured out within the blockchain space or beyond, right? And, and so here's an example for you, Brandon. Um, there, there's this push to give people control over their information and you know, normally that is also paired with the ability to sell it under the purview of your data is your property, right? right? And in, in that metaphor confers upon it like a particular understanding of the world. It, it has um, economic logic to it that extends and, and gives you um, some understanding of, of the place of what you're talking about in the world. Property is something that I own um, or, or could own, and it's something that can be sold. Uh, it, it's disembodied from me. And um, another person could own this property and you know my traces could be completely wiped of it. And when we are talking about health data, um, I think that the metaphor of your data as your property breaks down uh, dramatically. You know, property is something, like I said earlier, that can be sold and, and something that um, could be disassociated from me entirely. But your health information will always be about you. It can never be disassociated from you. It's inherently part of you. And just like we don't let people sell people or own another person, I don't think we should let people own someone else's health information. But that's um, part of the natural logic that comes with the metaphor of data as property that um, you know, some, it's just thrown around a lot as something that people want to bring into the world. And I've spent um, time, you know, look for some publications from me or, or maybe mm -hmm. just my Twitter feed, I suppose, uh, on alternative models that I think are, um, better respect people's dignity and, and offer sort of a logic and a set of values to it that might be more appropriate for how we should treat people's health data. Um, so that's an example of a place where coming back to your original question of um, this intersection of, of ethics and emerging technology that I think is important and is, is super relevant to the blockchain space. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like we don't, in the blockchain space, I, don't, I feel like we don't talk about that quite enough. Um, especially for how many different areas and industries blockchain is able to actually reach. And I mean, if you think back to all the different kinds of technologies over the years, I mean, if you look at the automobile, for example, like ethically, it's a good thing to use it to get from point A to point B. I mean, ethically, it's bad to use it to run over your neighbor. So, and I don't think a lot of people think about how blockchain could be used in a non or ethically bad way when there's obviously a lot of good things it can do. Um, but I mean, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. But I mean, like from like a governmental perspective, there's a lot of controls you can put into place with blockchain from a, in a company perspective. 
Um, there's a lot of controls you could use it. You could use it for to put, use it for to put controls on on data or information or on products and services. So it's interesting to talk about it, and I don't think we really bridge that gap quite enough in the industry. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, th- I think I, 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 there's some sort of unspoken code or uh, some shared understanding that when you're building technology, we don't talk about ethics or, or morals or values um, as much as we should. And it's, it's not just a problem in the blockchain space, but it's a problem outside of it too. Uh, but I think it's particularly salient in um, the blockchain or broader cryptography space. And so I appreciate you bringing it up and giving me a a podium (laughs) to share this message. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree on your point that tech probably isn't really neutral. I mean, in my opinion, tech is very subjective. It's how you choose to use it in a lot of ways. You can use it for good reasons, for bad reasons. So yeah, it's definitely something interesting. I think we kind of ran through most of the topics. We could talk about zero knowledge proofs too. So I know we were mentioning that in the email a little bit as well. I'm fairly familiar with how they work. Um, but in terms of healthcare and information, does zero knowledge proofs have a, a future in like the healthcare industry? I think so. Um, it's, you know, like any of these emerging technologies that are are, um, sort of fundamental they need to be twisted and uh, built on top of in order to make them valuable in a a particular use case it's it's hard to predict the exact ways that they'll be used Um, but i'm i'm super excited just from first principles about zero knowledge proofs uh, because they let you prove something about data without actually revealing it right right And, you know, there are all kinds of places where I might want to prove something about my health information um, without actually revealing it to a third party. Like, you know, maybe I want to prove that a procedure had taken place within my health information um, and I don't want to share my entire longitudinal health record with a third party. Uh, The zero knowledge proofs are being used today as well in, in the meta ledger network. Um, in order to help track the provenance of, of drugs in the pharmaceutical supply chain. Mm. That's something that's in production today. Um, shout out to the Chronicle team, went live uh, in the past few weeks. So that's exciting. And, you know, more, more broadly, um, zero-knowledge proofs give you a way of proving some form of computation. Like, usually it's structured... Uh, in some kind of logic about, I know some fact about a value and I don't have to reveal that value, but there are ways um, to use zero knowledge proofs to prove that uh, some computation on say a data set was performed um, and you got a, a certain answer out of that data set. And I think that that's uh, a much that's a really interesting thing that you can do um, and, and sort of struggling with words uh, because I'm not sure how right. uh, knowledgeable your audience will be about zero knowledge proofs, right? <laughs> um, so trying to figure out the way to say this in, in a, a non-technical or non way that doesn't have very much jargon. But the ability to prove some computation uh, without necessarily showing the underlying data, I think is, is uh, a really interesting primitive that you could have. Like, 
Um, if you've got some sort of contract uh, with a set of business rules in that contract, you know, if this happens, then you do this. If this happens, then you do that. Um, programming that is a zero knowledge proof, giving the output and giving um, the ZKP along with it to be able to prove that those business rules were applied correctly, I think is um, broadly applicable for any kind of contract within healthcare. So anyway, I think they'll be really impactful. Yeah, I've, I've always kind of like understood zero knowledge proofs through like the math itself because it, it's kind of helps simplify it. I, I like the numbers, but it's like Z equals, like if Z equals the multiple of X and Y, you don't need to know necessarily what X and Y are. You just need to know that the multiples of X and Y give you Z, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's kind of how I look at it. And maybe for some people that'll make a little bit more sense, but yeah, not disclosing like the underlying information, but still providing enough that it allows you to, to work with it in a sense. Yeah. Like if you, um, so if I have some function F that's known to both of us, some business rules that you agree mm -hmm. upon, uh, I have some data set represented by the set X um, then I can apply those business rules F onto X, F of X, give you an output O, only share with you the output O as well as the zero knowledge proof that um, shows that I correctly applied the business rules to my underlying set X. And you can know that that output O was uh, correct given that, uh, given that set of business rules and verify that for yourself. That's like a, a little bit more mathematical way, perhaps, of saying what I just stumbled through before. No, it's interesting. Look at us getting nerdy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love this stuff. No, I think that really sums it up in general with zero knowledge proofs. I mean, I think it's a good way to explain it. Zcash has definitely made it the most popular, like ZK snarks and whatnot. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. I, I think that's everything that I had down as like questions and topics, but if there's anything you want to talk about or anything you have going on, any projects you're working on, um, I'll kind of open up the floor for you. You know, a lot of my, my time and energy right now is, is spent uh, on federated learning and um, mm. we are, are building this, uh, this blockchain facilitated federated learning infrastructure for specifically healthcare enterprises. Um, so I came on today to, to talk about that. And I think I touched on some of those themes, but, you know, to be specific, um, in federated learning, you're performing all kinds of actions on data, even though it may only stay on your local server. Right. And there are, um, updated models that are passed between different participants in your network as well. Uh, we are creating some infrastructure that will help orchestrate that process and do things um, like set the stage for the incentivization of parties within a federated learning network um, by recording you know, who's contributed to the algorithm best um, and uh, setting off processes for training on certain data sets, uh, giving fine-grained permissions, adding extra layers of privacy, um, on top of that and what we call privacy in depth. And if that interests you, uh, number one, feel free to reach out to me and I'd be happy to talk about how we can work with you. And number two, we just put out um, a, I think it's a four and a half page paper 
outlining the architecture and major features of our federated learning um, implementation that uses some novel combination of privacy preserving technologies. So again, just please feel free to reach out. I'm looking for interested parties. Um, we've already got a couple that want to work with us on this amazing technology and create some value for healthcare. And otherwise, uh, that, that's all that I've got to say tonight. So. <laughs> awesome. What, where can people find you online? I know you have like a blog and I know that you're on Twitter quite a bit. Yeah, always tweeting. Uh, you'll, you'll catch me at like 7 to 9 p.m. or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, at Bert C. Miller, B-E-R-T-C-M-I-L-L-E-R is my Twitter handle. And you can go to um, Uh I write I have a number of different musings on topics in blockchain, healthcare, life sciences, and privacy-preserving technologies. And then I... Um, I have a weekly newsletter as well, where I uh, share the important ideas and updates that you'll need to know if you're interested in healthcare and life sciences and you want to stay up to date on um, blockchain and other emerging technologies. Um, and you can find that too at bertcmiller.com. Uh, otherwise, I, I think that those are the two main places to find me. Awesome. Robert, thank you for coming on and taking the time. Really appreciate it. I think this is the first episode I've done that involves uh, both healthcare and blockchain and kind of where that bridge begins. So thanks for coming on and talking about that. And I think a lot of people will find some value in um, both of those subjects being combined. And um, again, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hopefully it was interesting. That was very interesting. Had a good time. I'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye.